This is Jason Albert, and you are listening to Nordic Nation from Faster Skier. A lack of on-snow opportunities. Although a major first-world problem, that's been on the mind of some this off-season. Here and there, we've published stories about a strict dryland diet for elite skiers this season, meaning no on-snow training. Mostly, that strict diet has applied to North Americans who normally access snow in late spring and summer at a variety of venues. There's the Hay Glacier in Canada and the Eagle Glacier up in Alaska to name a few of those summer skiing venues. In Europe, where glacier infrastructure is more common, access to higher altitude snow in summer has been part of the elite cross-country skier training plan for decades. Austria's Dachstein Glacier and its groomed Nordic trails are a world-class benchmark for those seeking summer snow. Which brings us to 83-year-old Marty Hall. For those who are new to ski racing, Hall was both a U.S. and Canadian head cross-country ski coach and a groundbreaker. He was and still is keen on expanding his knowledge. That was the case in the mid-70s when Hall began taking U.S. skiers to the Dachstein as part of his plan to expose athletes to European training methods. So, in this episode, we speak with Hall to learn about the first trips to the Dachstein and how it all came about. It's part history lesson, part walk down memory lane. Okay, so let's, um, to give people just a little short brief background here, um, you, I believe, are 83 years old. You have a long history in the sport. This is not your first time on this podcast, but you were both the head coach of the U.S. ski team, cross-country ski team, and uh, the Canadian team as well uh, during your career. Yeah. Correct? Yeah. But uh, within that 20-year, 20 25 years, I was, depending on whom the program director was, we got into the, the things, got into politics. I was a um, head coach, a women's coach. I started the women's program. I was the men's coach when Koki won his medal. I was the head coach, um, and that, those things changed usually every four or five or six years. But a lot of it was politics. We're gonna what we're gonna focus on today is the origins of the first glacier camp. And so you and I have talked a little bit on background, but you brought the team to Italy, and I'll let you fill in some blanks um, back in the mid seventies, and. Why don't you, you know, describe a little bit about one where you took the team and what was your reasoning for taking the team to the Dachstein Glacier? Just a few weeks ago, the ski team was talking about their glacier camps and how important they are, and that they're losing them this summer. And it just sort of perked up my mind as to, you know, we were neophyte nation when it came to where we were back in the 70s and I when I became the the coach uh, I started the women's program my big deal was there were two things I really wanted to do and that was number one was to chase down more more time on snow and then also being around the Europeans I wanted my guys to be with them so much that they realized they put their pants on every day just like they did. And so 
those things were sort of underlying all the time. And I got to be quite friendly with the German coach, a guy by the name of George Suter. And he invited me to uh, a spring camp of theirs in June, early June. And it was in Sizer Elm, a place that we go to for altitude training in the middle of the winter or in different situations. They use Sizer Elm for any number of things. Uh, it's a, it's a, an Italian town, high plateau, the highest skiing plateau in Europe and has early snow and it's Italian. But they speak German. That came from World War II. Those borders have flipped back and forth. So it's a great place to go, and especially the, the cuisine. Oh, gosh, it's great. And it's uh, so the number of trips that I've taken there, my wife and I have taken some of our good friends over there for a two-week camp of hiking and skiing and and just being there. So anyway... Uh, it's her favorite place to go in Europe. Just uh, her favorite place. Well, I'm just curious, like, you know, obviously, like, getting on snow traditionally, meaning that in a non-COVID, non-pandemic situation, you know, the U.S. ski team historically, you know, over the past decade has brought a crew to New Zealand to the snow farm to get to get on early season snow, there's been groups that have gone to the Dachstein Glacier that have been intermittently skiers that go to the Hague Glacier over in, uh, in Canada. You know, I'm curious, like before you guys were even going to on snow camps during the summer or the off season, and I'm sure you were mindful of how much access the Europeans had. Um, were you stressed about it or, you know, were you essentially thinking, okay, you know, dry land training, some roller ski training is somewhat adequate enough for us to show up on the World Cup and then get our snow fitness and our technique work in early season. So when I started with the U.S. ski team, which was in 1969, I was not paid full time. I was three quarters. I paid nine months of the year to be that coach. And the athletes trained that way. We weren't full-time trainers at that point. And that's one of the things I changed within the women's program. And John Caldwell was doing the men's. So that was one of the things we spiffed up. Uh, the other thing we did, we started on snow in Thanksgiving, which put us a month behind the Europeans. And it didn't take me long to find out what, you know, that they were doing that in all different kinds of places and ways. So we started to add a camp that started you know, in, in early November. And then the other thing we also added on, which is the other end of the, of the spectrum, was uh, in the springtime. We never had spring camps, uh, any, anything like that. We started that. And um, then there were other professional coaches. You know, I had a men's coach, an assistant coach um, that were brought on board. So we were just growing the program. This, the, the program was going from being the old way to the new way. This was in 1969 when grooming was just starting to happen. It's my feeling that the big change of 
going from the old to the new was through gro from grooming, you know, all that happened in grooming. One of the things I've got to say is that I was educated as a coach, physiology, biomechanics, all that stuff, which not very many of North American coaches are, which is too bad. So I, you know, had all that background. So the, we were adding things into the into the overall program. Mark Schnell, you know, we had a sports science program that uh, I, John and I put it together with Jim, a guy by the name of Jim Belfont's a name you probably don't know, but he was my program director at, at one point, and uh, we started doing that kind of stuff. Sports psychology. I mean, we had doctors of everything, so we were. Just blowing the program up. What year are we in? So you're going to be in 1975-76 when we first, and I, and I started in 69. Okay, and one of the other limitations anywhere along the line, I, I can't tell you over the years with both the U.S. program and the Canadian program until we got uh, uh, some people with ability Shortage of money, change your budget, change your program. Uh, did, uh, I mean, some years uh, I would change my, my program by three, you know, financially three or four times. Speaking of finances, right? So, I mean, it's obviously costly to get people to Europe. It's costly to stay at the base of the glacier. And then there's figuring out, you know, cost to actually get up on the glacier. I know nowadays they sell passes and you got to take a lift up there. All cheaper back then. Sure, it's all cheaper okay. back then, but you know the dollars. The, the, the. I mean, Jason, it was cheaper compared to the compared to the American dollar. But my question is, let's use Bill Koch as an example. You know, the most you know up until recently, the most storied you know U.S. Uh, cross country skier. What would have been his financial situation when you're like, hey, everybody, we're going to the glacier this summer? And we're going to make it work. How? What did that look like for him? You know, getting over there and paying for things. Is that something covered by the team back then? Jason, we were, yeah. you're playing right into my hands. <laughs> nineteen seventy-five, seventy-six. Our first trip to the glacier was nineteen seventy-six, August of nineteen seventy-six. So, what do you think the money was like then? I can tell you, when you win a medal. All kinds of things start to jump out at you that you had no involvement with. Our ski team pool exploded, exploded. And our supplier team pool exploded. I had a lawyer friend who wrote all the contracts for people to, you know, come in and be in our ski pool and what they were going to pay and all that kind of, And, I mean, I was running my butt off putting together the ski pool. The first year of the ski pool... Koki ended up uh, earning on his contract. So there's two contracts the athlete has with um, a, with a supplier or a sponsor. There's the contract for money, just plain money, and then there's a premium schedule. If you win the world championships, that was worth fifty thousand bucks with the ski company, or twenty five thousand bucks back then. Koki came out of that first year making over forty thousand straight up money to him. That's significant. Okay. Yes, it is. With our pool, we generated a lot of extra money. I had a lot of extra program all of a sudden. And so in the trials and tribulations of moving around the World Cup schedule and the international schedule, 
That spring in 75, there was a program in Inuvik, Canada. I don't, I'm not Inuvik, but I'm not sure which province. Maybe it was a territory. And they called it Top of the World Championships, April. Okay? And Bjorga Pedersen, he was the big leader in Canada for skiing, started the uh, program in Inuvik for the natives. Sharon and Shirley Firth, those kinds of guys, he produced all those people. But he put this uh, top of the world championships together, international conference. And the one thing he didn't tell us, I promise you clear blue skies and powder snow and beautiful tracks. But he never said anything about the temperature or the wind. <laughs> and so when you, we, he, the door opened on the plane and you stepped out, holy sheepish creepers. Was, oh, the, it was like driving a, a nail through your forehead. A lot of the time in Anuvik, it's just flat as a pancake. I got real friendly with George Suter, the German coach, okay? And we were there together for about eight or nine days. So there were a lot of evenings where we'd have, you know, race a day, a day off, race a day. So there would be evenings where we would not have anything to do with the racing, really. But he and I would just sit and talk and sit and talk. And he finally said, hey, why don't you come to one of my camps? He said, and if I feel like I'd like to come to your camp, you can invite me. And so I went to his camp in, in Sizer Elm, and uh, it was in June, and I took Kathy with me. The camp of, was made up of everyday hiking. At, in Sizer Elm, is uh, base uh, elevation of Sizer Elm is uh, 6,700. So we're at altitude all the time and then they hiked into altitude and they would go off on these three and four hour hikes and they would be met by the coaches george knew where to cut across to go and find his guys halfway and then we would be at some hut up in the mountains which was an easy hike for us and then he had a physio with him they give the guys all a massage they'd get a snack and then they'd continue on for another two hours and be back at the chalet at one o'clock then they'd take a nap, and then in the afternoon, they'd have some kind of program, strength program, blah, blah, blah. So one of the athletes on that team was a guy by the name of George Ziffel, and he was a, a very Americanized German. He, for some reason, loved the United States, became very friendly with him, and he was going from that camp to uh, Dachstein. And I had a pair of skis made by a company called Love It. And he, and he found out that I was going or I told him I was going. He said he gave me a pair of skis so I could take them and try them on the glacier because we would have access to the glacier. So at the end of the camp, we jumped in the car with uh, Zipfel, three of us in a uh, Volkswagen, little bug, and drove over to the Dachstein. When we got there, it was pouring rain, and George said, it is going to be ugly up there on the glacier, but Gerhard's up there testing skis. So I said, I'm going. It was all foggy, so we couldn't see the ground really, so it wasn't that scary, but up we went and got on the glacier, and I skied down on my skis, and George did, and I had to be with Zipville going down because I didn't know where I was on that glacier. And I had the feeling that that front face was at least a thousand feet of straight drop. And uh, so I, that was not a place to be going around on your own. So 
uh, went down to this floor section and got into, met Gerhard. He was trying skis out, and so I did my tryouts. It was all, just ugly up there, raining, cloudy, wind blowing. And no athletes. You're up there essentially kind of feeling things out. I wanted to see it, get a feel for it, and, of course, knowing what they were doing. But he was up there, and he had, a, you know, 40, 50 pairs of skis lying on the snow. He's testing skis for Fisher. He's the Fisher racer chaser. He asked me, he said, can I try your skis? I said, yep. So he got on my beloved skis, and they had a different chemistry to them. They were synthetic, but they were all synthetic for a number of years, and maybe even now. Meaning like a foam core or something like that? You got got it. You got it. So... And the first thing you could tell a difference was picking up the, the Lovitz and then picking up a pair of Fishers. There was enough difference. And so, you know, they were doing air cores and all that kind of stuff. And uh, so on the ride down to the back to Sanity, he was in the tram. And when we got to the bottom or at the top, I doesn't matter where, but I had to go to the bathroom and he said... Uh, uh, can you make sure you take a long trip out there? Because I'm going to make sure these skis of yours get broken. <laughs> I want to. I want to see what's in them. Ah, interesting. You, you know, cheating is yeah. cheating. Everybody will cheat, and he would have done that to, in a second if he thought he could get away with it. <laughs> no, he would. Okay, so that was how I got introduced to the glacier. And then, you know, in talking with him and what they do with the program and blah, blah, and right at the base of the glacier uh, on the tram, the tram station where it starts at the bottom, is a plateau, a small plateau with three hotels. But when we finally ended up going in 76, we stayed at a hotel down at the bottom of the mountain, really down in Ramsau. And up at where we were is, is called Dachstein. We stayed down there. And the first year it became very evident that we didn't want to be down there because the tram went at 8 o'clock. We weren't the only guys on the glacier. That was one of, that's one of the hugest. You know, you, I said earlier that I wanted to chase these Europeans all as get as close as I could so we could smell them and blah, 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 and see them and feel them. And get my guys so they were comfortable and they would talk with them and all that kind of stuff. Sazeralm, it's, you know, 6,500 feet is very different than 9,000 feet. And oh, yeah. But it's still, so 69, when you get to 7,000 feet is when things really start to get funny. Yeah, I mean, okay. yeah. But, and, and how are you, and, and again, maybe, you know, what was the science like back then in terms Not of- good. Yeah, I'm sure it wasn't not, great. Not in terms of okay. telling your athletes, like, look, you're going to be taxed. Obviously, they know they're going to be taxed because there's less oxygen up there. But they're also going uh, and, quote, chasing the Europeans. I mean, was there a consideration back then about, like, maybe temper yourselves or like, hey, we're here, we're seizing the opportunity let's just do what these guys are doing or gals are doing. Yeah. So one of the big things that came out of those early camps was the fact that we were dealing with altitude and jet lag. How about that? How about that? Doesn't sound good. For a hurdle. The kids would, I didn't sleep last night. Didn't they talk about it? So I finally brought my sports psychologist to the, to one of those camps 
And the first night, uh, first day, we went through, went to the meals, all that stuff. And the next day, the kids are all talking at breakfast and lunch about different sleeping. So he grabbed me. He said, hey, I'll tell you what. You got to get those kids to stop talking about altitude. Got to get them to stop talking about not sleeping. It's going to happen sooner or later, but they can't keep talking about it because they're prolonging it by talking about it. So we had him make a presentation to the team. That's off the table. No more talking about, you know, we're at 6,900. Well, we're at 7,000. No, we're at 7,900. We're at 89. 89. Yeah, that's right. right. Okay. And so, you know, I said, you have to feel, told him, you're going to have to feel a different zone one. Okay, because that's where you want to spend a lot of your first few days, and you'll know when you start to feel better and can do blah, 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 more vertical, more training, faster stuff. So we stayed down, way down in Ramsau, which is down around 3,500, 3,600 feet. Okay, and then I said to myself, well, you dope. So the next year when we went to the glacier, I, we started going all the time. And there's so many benefits for us to go over there at this time in our program that it's easy to make the decision so so there could be a couple of like perceived benefits so one is physiological right and then again like you know i've we had i did an interview with uh on a the devon uh, kershaw podcast a couple weeks ago with another fellow alex hutchinson and we kind of focused on you know, not everybody is a responder or positive responder to altitude camps, right? So there's some variability, but really why I'm bringing this up is like one benefit might be, you know, uh, someone's getting a boost from training at altitude if they can manage their their zones properly. There's the psychological benefit of building team, you know, a culture. We're doing the same things as the Europeans are doing. And then there's all... And there's also the opportunity to work on technique, you know, rather than being on roller skis, you're actually on snow. And I'm, I'm just kind of curious, was it a mix of all of those things that were benefits or was there something so that's, forget, yeah, go ahead. Don't forget there's afternoons too. Yeah. Are you up on the glacier in the afternoon? It could be. Some athletes would drive. So it was athlete individual programs. In other words, I'm here. Oh, well, I'm not there. I'm not going to be doing what you're doing. That kind of thing. And it's just good communication. And we all lived in the same hotel. We ate at the same meals. It was really easy to manipulate or guide these guys along. We weren't doing as much heart rate stuff at that point, but we were getting into it. I mean, there's a huge number of benefits. And the, the one is, is learning how to use the glacier to your best interest. One of the things we did also, the first year we went for a week, not enough time. Had to have two weeks to get over both the jet lag and the altitude so that you would have some positive, real positive days where you could really crank it up more. And and after that initial year, how many years in succession did you, did you take a group over there? Okay, I've been on the glacier over in Europe 52 times with the U.S. program and the Canadian program. But then the Canadian program, when we had that, we started to get access. Do you know Canadian Mountain Holiday? Yeah, CMH. I know. You know that? Yeah. 
Yeah, You know why I know that well? I know it well because I've hoofed myself into the bugaboos many times, which is the mountain yes. range, and I've yeah. seen. Oh, that I know. C- yeah, I've seen that CMH helicopter fly up and plop people in there, and I'm like, oh, one day. But the finances never worked out to my advantage, so I do know the CMH deal. <laughs> Jason, I hate to tell you, but beat you to it. <laughs> I can dream. Can Hans Gamosier? Is he the founder? The owner of CMH? Yeah. For some reason, he got involved with the two Firth girls. And they worked for him. And then they talked to him about going on. So what? with his hiking, he has hiking programs in the summer. Okay, He uses the lodges, really uh, caters to uh, the New York crowd. Oh, I, I, I know. I know it's a posh situation. He gave us camps. Free, like amongst, and I know they have huts kind of in different spots in the Canadian Rockies. But we, he had one hut, and he would take and take the that clear the hikers out of that hut and put us in there for two weeks. Where was that hut? It wasn't the one in the Bugaboos, was it? It was in the Bugaboos. Yes. Oh, Marty. Oh, I Mm. know. I know. It it, it was he hauled. We hauled our own machines up to groom the tracks, and not just once a summer, two or three times a summer, for ten or twelve days each camp. We didn't have to deal with jet lag anymore. Oh, it's a grand life. What I, I am kind of curious, like you know, not that it's necessarily fallen out of favor for European teams. I mean, it's the access is easier for for Europeans than it is for U.S. athletes and Canadian athletes to head over. And I know that there was a group, for example, gosh, maybe last fall, so not this past fall, but a, you know, a year ago, uh, from Crassbury that spent some time on the, on the doc scene. So I'm curious, like, you know, from your understanding, and this is something I could easily ask, you know, uh, uh, Matt Wickham or Chris Grover, but, you know, when did things move in a different direction and maybe why you know was it was it cost was it the fear of you know too much time at altitude and maybe not being able to keep the ego in check and going too hard at that type of elevation um because it's pretty rare that you hear of you know north american athletes like i said i just did cite an example but it's not ubiquitous you know i don't you know they're, they're heading to other venues with reliable snow, but they're markedly lower. But that would be that would be the only the only guys that are doing that. Okay, the Americans at Eagle Glacier, right? Yep, that's right. Forgot yeah. about that. Yeah, they're the only ones. They, they, they can, Canadians are on Hay Glacier. That's altitude. Sure. That's altitude. That's up at eight, eight nine thousand feet. Okay, and that, they have to have that to have the snow. Whereas Eagle River is mm-hmm. farther north. Relatively low. Yeah, exactly. Well, I think they're probably skiing at about 5,000, aren't they? Right. Yeah. And it, it, is that why you think, you know, it just sort of lost favor, cost? Well, the other, the other thing is, is finding those agencies who want to support it. Okay. So Canada has the government, state government. Okay, and it's skiing is blah, blah blah, and they had a guy by the name of Lowell Thomas, who I think put a million bucks to, towards the Eagle River Glacier, 
and that was for buildings, and they can go up there and live. And that's that's what's happened at the Hay Glacier. It's an outcome of the Olympics, the '88 Olympics. What about for you? When I mean, were you regularly taking teams to the glacier? prior to your retirement or was there a time when you just felt like okay we've evolved you know or taking a different path due to maybe better understanding of physiology and each athlete's training plan uh, so we i never in other words the program never went down the program's been um altitude or glacier skiing forever ever since 76 well, of course, the Canadians would be behind us. I I don't know when they officially started. Oh, I know the first the first camp I went to in Canada was on the uh, what, oh, Delphine Glacier, and my fill-in coach for that camp, who became one of my full-time coaches a year later, was running the camp. He had a chance to be me, but didn't want to live in Ottawa. And it was really ironic. When I hired him, he moved to Ottawa. <laughs> really, so that's, I think that was the beginning of the Canadian programs. All roads lead to the glacier in the summertime. Okay. Landline. There's your landline. Yeah, there line. is. Yeah. yeah. Um, anything that I missed that you want to bring up? The other thing about going to the glacier, save the body from ground pounding. Big deal, in my mind. Okay? And especially for the athletes. Two weeks off of, you know, the kind of ground pounding you do in August, September. Okay? Um, what else do I have? Oh, international coaching experiences. In Canada, we did this more than they do down here. We would take, uh, so we would have a number of coaching experiences that would take place throughout the year. And people would sign, coaches would sign up for them and have to go through formal programs of participation, presentations, uh, write-ups, that kind of stuff, so that uh, we were, you know, hopefully bringing along the next layer of coaches, okay? Marty, thanks for your time. I appreciate it. Good to talk to you. Have a great day. Already have. Thanks for listening, and stay safe out there. 